Hello, and welcome to the Hoover Institution's 2016 Southern California Conference. I'm Chris Dower, Hoover's Director of Marketing and Strategic Communications. Our speaker in this podcast is Bill Whalen, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution. The title of his talk is Bye Bye Hawkeye Kossai, How Iowa's Results Impact the 2016 Election. And it was recorded on February 2nd, 2016. Uh, first, thank you all for coming out uh, today, taking time out of your schedules to join us. Uh, speaking on the behalf of my fellow fellows, we do appreciate the time you put in these conferences, and we are keenly aware that without your support and your generosity, we don't get to play like this. So thank you very much for that. Uh, second, I have to single out my boss, Pete Wilson. Uh, every election for me begins with one simple thought. If we just elected Pete Wilson president in 1996, what a better world it would be today. <laughs> I'm still buying dinner, right? (laughs) So uh, nights like last night for me are a wonderful reminder of the blessing it is to live on the West Coast for one reason. We're three hours behind what happens on the East Coast. For me, I was pressed. I had to watch the Iowa results and turn around and write a column for foxnews.com, lickety-split. This would have really been horrible on the East Coast. I would have been up to 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning struggling through returns and trying to figure out what to do, thanks to both technology, the Microsoft Cloud, which sped up the voting process in Iowa last night, and my getting lucky and kind of guessing what would happen beforehand. I was done by about 10 o'clock at night, so it it was a good night selfishly for me. Not so good night for some people who we'll get to in a minute. As I was writing that Fox column, um, my first thought was this. If an alien life form beamed down to this planet and asked me to describe the Iowa caucuses, how would I describe it? And I do believe in alien life. How else to explain Bernie Sanders? (laughs) I'd probably begin by trying to explain what a caucus is and not just the process but the origin of the word. There is even in politics debate over where caucus came from. Some contend that it is an Algonquin term, uh, meaning, quote, one who advises, urges, or encourages. There's another school of thought that the actually phrase belongs to John Adams, who in the 1760s formed a club in Boston called the Caucus Club. And caucus, in that case, came from the Greek word kaukos, K-A-U-K-O-S, which means drinking cup. (laughs) And if you watch these votes, sometimes that is a good way to follow these things with a drink in hand. Uh, This much you can say about Iowa. It is both a charming process in that politicians are forced to retail and the voting system is arcane and is distinctly uh, American. On the other hand, it's not the best way to start this process for this simple reason. We're a nation of about 318 million people, 3.1 million of whom live in the great state of Iowa. Last night, about 350,000 Iowans turned out, so you're talking about roughly one-tenth of one percent of the country setting this thing into motion, and not exactly a snapshot of America. Iowa is 92% white. Iowa is uh, one-third black population compared to the rest of the country. Its Hispanic population is about one-fourth. It is 63% Protestant. California, by comparison, is only 39% Protestant. And that 63% of Protestants in Iowa split about 50-50 between mainline Protestants and evangelicals. So this is not exactly where you want to start a process if you're looking for somebody who's going to corral 270 electoral votes. And for Republicans, this has not been a very pleasant place to start the presidential bidding. Why? Ronald Reagan ran in the Iowa caucuses in 1980. Like someone whose name we shall not mention until a few minutes from now, he chose to skip the last debate, and he was punished. He lost to George H.W. Bush. 
H.W. Bush ran in 1988 as Reagan's vice president seeking the presidency. He didn't finish first, second. He finished third behind Bob Dole and Pat, and Pat Robertson, the evangelical. Bob Dole won the caucuses that year. He finishes first in 1988. He finishes first again in 1996. He doesn't attain the presidency either time. We move forward to the year 2000, where George W. Bush actually pulls off the trick of winning in Iowa in the caucuses and actually making it to the White House. But then beyond W. Bush, we have Mike Huckabee in 2008 and Rick Santorum in 2012, whose candidacies did not go very far. So Iowa is not a very good launching pad for Republicans. Now, a couple of observations about what occurred last night. First of all, this was change, plain and simple. A vote for change, a lot of people voting, which was a change. I was just on the Iowa Secretary of State's page a couple of hours ago, and if you uh, do the math, the Republican turnout right now is at about 187,000. It was 122,501 back in 2012. This is an increase of well over 50%. This is staggering. Moreover, those voters struck a blow against anyone and most everyone who had an honorific before their name. The subtitle for the Republican vote would be experience need not apply. You add up the totals of Ted Cruz, Donald Trump, Marco Rubio, Ben Carson, and Carly Fiorina. Combined, they received 86% of the Republican vote six out of seven votes. And of those five candidates, only two of them, Rubio and Cruz, have held office a combined 10 years of federal office holding. So not exactly a staggering vote for experience now, was it? The past two winners in Iowa, as I mentioned, Santorum and Huckabee, combined, they got 2.8% of the vote last night. Not pleasant. The three governors who are now clinging for dear life in New Hampshire, that's Jeb Bush, Chris Christie, and John Kasich, combined, 6.5% of the vote. By the way, congratulations to each and every one of you who did not campaign in Iowa. You managed to finish only 12, points, or 12 votes behind Jim Gilmore. <laughs> not pretty. So on the one hand, change came through and that voters struck a blow against established Republicans. And I'm going to try to avoid the word establishment. I think we need to create a swear jar. Everybody is throwing this word around establishment. When you think about it, each and every one of us belongs to an establishment. We're in an academic establishment. We're in a political establishment. We're in a professional establishment. So let's try to find a different word for it. But quote-unquote establishment Republicans did take a hit last night. But something else which came through in Iowa last night was the concept of continuity. Going back to Bob Dole in 1988, there is a pattern to how Republicans do their business in Iowa. They choose someone for whom we could say is, quote, one of us, if we're an Iowa Republican voter. Dole was a son of Kansas. Russell, Kansas is about a four-hour drive from the Iowa border. Born in the Midwest, a Midwestern values, devout fan of agricultural interest, one of us. George W. Bush in the year 2000, his personal faith is heavily intertwined with his policy ideas. The same for Mike Huckabee and the same for Rick Santorum, one of us. And Ted Cruz, last night's winner, what did he do? He preached. And boy, did he ever preach to evangelical voters as one of us. And one of us delivered. The evangelicals, not surprisingly, did not vote for the three-time married, four-time bankrupt guy from New York. Instead, they went for Cruz. <laughs> now, a couple of thoughts about the Republican finishers, and then we'll move on to where we go from here. Cruz, 27.6% of the vote, 51,000 votes in Iowa, never seen before. He won by organization, plain and simple. He had 12,000 volunteers on the ground, 1,000 precinct captains. They actually rented two college dorms that they called Camp Cruz and just camped people out in Iowa for months at a time. Cruz, to his credit, stood hard against the ethanol lobby. 
And last night was a very bad night for Terry Branstad, the longest serving governor in America, the governor of Iowa, who tried to make it a point to defeat Cruz and got behind Trump on the issue of ethanol, and he failed, plain and simple. Um, but uh, So Cruz exceeded his expectations, but Cruz actually faces kind of a rocky road from here, beginning with one thing. He is on very bad grounds right now with, uh, with Ben Carson as of this morning. There are allegations uh, flying around Iowa that Cruz supporters went into caucus rooms and buttonholed Carson supporters and said, your guy is dropping out of the race tonight. Come vote with us. Uh, Carson is complaining about this this morning, and I suspect that Carson may at some point decide to get even by endorsing somebody else in Ted Cruz if and when he decides to drop out. So uh, maybe a Pyrrhic victory for Cruz in that regard. Donald Trump at 24.3%. Uh, he finished 5,200 votes behind Cruz. A bad night for Donald Trump in this regard. Uh, I defer to the great political philosopher Mike Tyson, <laughs> who once said of getting in the boxing ring that, quote, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. <laughs> and last night, Donald Trump got punched in the mouth. I know what you're thinking. Hard target. How could you miss it? <laughs> Trump led in every poll in New Hampshire, in, uh, in Iowa, beginning on January the 8th. And if you look at the real clear politics average, he was averaging about 28% in that poll, the average of the polls, and he finished at 24.3. He underperformed. Trump was absolutely correct in that he would swell the electorate, and he was absolutely wrong in that that larger-than-expected electorate would vote entirely for him. If you look at it, they split their vote three ways between Trump, Cruz, and the third-place finisher, Marco Rubio, who we'll get to in a minute. The biggest shocker of the evening, quite clearly, was Donald Trump getting before his supporters and being contrite and humble, and not being ugly in defeat. But he also had to eat crow. Now, Trump supporters, and there are a lot of them out there, and boy, they're angry. I, when I write an article for Fox News, it goes into Twitter, and it goes on my Twitter feed. And I woke up this morning with 150 comments on my Twitter feed, all the same suggestion, basically, that I ingest a large amount of excrement and expire very, very soon. <laughs> they care not for me, and they care not for criticism of Mr. Trump. But the point is, Donald Trump again got hit in the mouth because he led with the mouth. You go back onto Trump's Twitter feed of a couple weeks ago, and here's what he wrote, quote, no one remembers who comes in second. It's a, uh, it's a quote by the famous golfer Walter Hagen, and Trump decided in his wisdom to put it forward, and so karma has a way of coming back to you in politics, and Trump learned this the hard way. The third-place finisher, this is Iowa, so up is down and down is up, and it's all about funny expectations. The third-place winner, you could argue the real winner of this uh, race last night, would be Marco Rubio. He finished with 23.1%. He trailed Trump by about 2,300 votes the last time I checked. Uh, only one poll in the last year had Rubio cracking 20% in Iowa. And his people played, I think, just an exquisite game when it came to expectations and how to handle their man. There's been a lot of pressure on the Rubio campaign for about the past four months now saying, what are you guys doing? You're not spending enough time in Iowa. You're not spending enough time in New Hampshire. You're spending way too much trying to sell this guy as a national candidate when you need to go on the ground in Iowa and New Hampshire and go door to door. And they've held back. And then in December, they saw an opening. And the opening was this. Carson's campaign collapsed, went into free fall. Cruz stepped into that void. He went to the top of the polls, at which point Donald Trump engaged and decided to attack Cruz. And that became the driving narrative of the Republican race. Enter at this point Marco Rubio, who now hits the ground in Iowa and starts campaigning and also starts spending a lot of money on TV. He ran 30-minute ads on the eve of the election, talking what? Biography, the immigrant story of his parents, and about being electable. And this paid off handsomely for him on caucus night.
you look at the entrance polls, this is a caucus, so we have entrance polls, not exit polls, but the entrance polls showed that Rubio did best among two classes of voters. Number one, late deciders, people who could not make up their mind until the last minute who to vote for, and they went with Rubio over Trump and Cruz and the rest of the Republicans. But then the second group that he did well with, and there's about 20% of the electorate last night, these are the people for whom electability was their number one issue, who can actually get 270 electoral votes. And this is what propelled him toward third place. Then his people did a very smart thing. Once they figured, my goodness, we've got third place locked up and we're nipping at Trump's heels, they rushed him out to the cameras as fast as he could. And they gave all the impression in the world that he'd won the damn thing. So he's getting up there and he's talking positive. It's on to New Hampshire. It's on to Washington. We're going to win this whole thing. He, to his credit, he didn't have a teleprompter or a script. He's just, he's done this speech a million times, so he can just roll his eyes in the back of his head and give it. But he just stuck to a very upbeat, high road speech. And he looked like a winner last night, so a good night for Marco. A bad night for the rest of the pack, unfortunately. I mentioned the governors, for example, who took a beating. Mike Huckabee is already out of the race. Rick Santorum, probably not far behind. Carly, Ben Carson, Rand Paul, these are all candidates who are going to face a very hard decision in the next seven to ten days after we vote in New Hampshire. And a race that was once 17 candidates will soon be down to three very quickly. A form holds to New Hampshire, as I think it will. So there are three basic questions, I think, coming out of these caucuses for the Republican side of the field moving forward. Number one, with Ted Cruz, the winner in the caucuses, can he build on the base that he showed in Iowa? Cruz had two advantages in the race last night. Number one, about three in five voters were evangelical. He's not going to find that in another state anytime soon. Secondly, his numbers were especially high in terms of positives in Iowa. He had about a 60% approval rating, something else which he's not going to encounter except for a select number of southern states. So can he build beyond the conservative base, plain and simple? Second question, Trump. Getting hit in the mouth, what do you do? What's the plan now? Does he go back and stick to the form in Iowa? Trump bet on one thing in Iowa, that not organization but star power would carry the day that this guy could be such a presence on Fox News, create such a buzz when he went into the state. He was very clever about this. I don't know if you saw the event he did right on the eve of the election. He went into Dubuque. Lands in Dubuque. He flies in on the airplane. He gets off the airplane. The airplane takes off. The airplane then does a couple of touches and goes. Everyone's, ooh, ah, looking at the big 757 and coming up and down. Then he opens up the airplane to the public, and he lets kids run up and down the aisles. Now, this is... P.T. Barnum would be proud. This is great showmanship, plain and simple, but it's not the same as going out and actually pounding on doors and physically getting people to show up for the caucuses. Trump thought he could do it differently, and he guessed wrong. Does he stick to the same script in New Hampshire, or does he try to change at all? And if he tries to change, does he, dare I say, become a more serious candidate? The thing about Trump is his policy is a mile wide and an inch deep. Does he now try to show that he's a thinking man? Does he have gravitas or does he just stick to being the Donald of the old? We will see. And then number three, Marco Rubio, who now clearly occupies the number one spot in the so-called electable lane. If I'm Marco Rubio, I'm doing two things this week. The first thing is I'm on the phone talking to donors, those donors who've given generously to Jeb Bush and to John Kasich and Chris Christie, whose space that Rubio is sharing. And I just kind of politely say that, hey, now's the time to get on board the train. The train is leaving the station. Please join us. Plant that seed. Then the second thing I'm doing is I'm remaining relentlessly positive in New Hampshire. This is not going to be easy. First thing this morning in New Hampshire, Chris Christie was attacking Rubio. He called him a boy in the bubble. 
which is both a Paul Simon song, but also a reference to a really bad movie, the 1970s starring John Travolta, in which he suffers from a, uh, a disease in which he is not immune from viruses, so he lives inside a plastic bubble. He's suggesting that Rubio is both inside the bubble, and I think boy is also a word he chooses deliberately. So Rubio is going to have to decide, do I engage with these people or I just smile? If I were him, I would just smile and just try to stay above it because electability and being positive is working for him. Now then, quickly, let me go through a timeline here. Don't worry, we're going to talk about Hillary in a minute. I know that's what you all came here for today, to talk about Hillary. So where do we go from here? February the 9th, New Hampshire. Probably a good night for Trump. He's up by about 20 points in the polls. If last night's true and he underperforms by about four to five points, let's say it's a 15-point lead, that's giving away a lot in the last week, 15 points. So let's say he holds on. Also, the primary, as you know, New Hampshire is different from Iowa. It's a primary, not a caucus. It's open to independents and Democrats who can cross over. Uh, New Hampshire, by the way, is more white than Iowa, actually. Iowa's 92% white. New Hampshire is 94% white, if you can believe that. It's also more Catholic than New Iowa is as well, so it's slightly different in that regard. So let's assume that Trump holds on in New Hampshire. We then move forward to February the 20th. The Democrats gather in Nevada for their caucus, and the Republicans gather in South Carolina for their primary. Probably also a good day for Trump. But you never know, Cruz might appear, and you might see Rubio play the expectations game if he shows up well in New Hampshire. Uh, and Rubio, by the way, is now playing for second place in New Hampshire. That is critical to his cause moving forward, I think. After February the 20th, three days later, Nevada has its Republican caucuses. February the 27th closes out with the Democrats gathering in South Carolina for their primary. And now we move on to March the 1st, and here's where the fun really begins. March roars in like a lion. Super Tuesday. 14 states and territories are voting on the Republican side, the biggest prize being Texas. Hmm. Wonder who's a favorite in Texas. <laughs> that day includes six Confederate states. It includes Colorado, Massachusetts, Minnesota. It's a national snapshot. March the 5th, not too long after that, we have a scattering of primaries, Kentucky, Kansas, Maine, Louisiana, Nebraska, Puerto Rico on March the 6th. March the 8th, Michigan. Then circle your calendar, March the 15th. This is the first of what I'd call the Republicans' two potential groundhog days. Today is February the 2nd, by the way. Happy Groundhog Day to all of you. Uh, Punxsutawney Phil was dragged out of his hole. Uh, he never climbs out of his old volition. They grab the poor critter by his neck and put him out of the stump. It's really not very fun to watch, by the way. They reach in there. Some brave soul who's willing to get bitten and get a rabies shot pulls him out. They put him on the stump. They hold him down as long as they can to figure out if there's a shadow or not. And they came to the conclusion that he did not see his shadow. That means that, in theory, we're headed for an early spring, unless March the 15th breaks otherwise for the Republicans, and that's why I call it the first Groundhog Day. March the 15th includes Florida, Illinois, Missouri, North Carolina, and Ohio. The rules change on March the 15th, and this is why it's important. As of March 15th, primaries become winner-take-all. Everything before this is proportional. Trump, Cruz, Rubio could have really big nights, but they're not going to rack up delegates. On March the 15th, things change. 367 delegates are in play on March the 15th. That is 30% of what it takes to get to the magical 1237 and the Republican nomination. If a Republican sweeps March 15th, the process ends quicker rather than later. On the other hand, if the race breaks two or three ways, as it very well could, it's Groundhog Day because we're in for six weeks of Republican winter which leads us to March 22nd in Arizona and Utah, April the 5th in Wisconsin, April the 19th in New York, and then April the 26th, which is the second potential Groundhog Day for the Republicans, Connecticut, Maryland, Pennsylvania, Delaware, Rhode Island, 
172 delegates or 14% of what it takes to get to 1237. If there is not consensus on April the 26th, then brace yourself. Grant Hog Day, six more weeks of winter, and guess what? The race is coming to California. I know, like brokered conventions, this is like Charlie Brown in the football. We dangle this thing out in front of you every four years. We make you run up and try to kick it, and we pull it back, and you look silly hoping for it. But this could be the year it happens if you don't have good performances on the 15th of March and the 26th of April. But it could happen. One reason why it happens is because it's a very light schedule for Republicans in the month of May. Only five states and one territory vote in all of May. So the vote very quickly goes toward California on June the 7th. As a strategist, I'd love to hear Pete Wilson's thoughts on this because he's had to think about this himself. It's a great question if you're running a presidential campaign. How do I play June the 7th? Because on the West Coast, there is California dangling 172 delegates at me. Wow, biggest of all prizes. But on the East Coast is New Jersey with 51 delegates. So you're thinking, you know, idiot. You go for 172. But guess what? The 172 are not winner-take-all. California, to its great credit, manages to make this as complicated as we can. If you win the popular vote in California, you get 13 delegates. The remaining 159 are up for grabs, and they're divided by congressional district. Each congressional district, each of the 53, gets three delegates. So it is possible to win the overall vote, but not walk away with the most delegates based on how you're doing district per district. So you're a candidate trying to figure out, do I spend my time in California trying to pick away at those 159 plus the 13, or do I go back east to New Jersey, which is only 51 delegates, but is winner take all. To further complicate matters, there are two very expensive TV markets in California, San Francisco and Los Angeles, plus San Diego and Sacramento, not a cheap place to campaign. New Jersey is no picnic either. New York in the north and Philadelphia at the south. So very complicated questions facing Republicans moving forward. That day, by the way, June the 7th, 303 delegates, if you include California, New Jersey, and three other states in the mix. That gets you um, 25% of the total to 1237 uh, as well. So California could play the decisive role. Brace yourself. Brace yourself. And after that, it's only six weeks until the RNC in Cleveland. Who knows? Maybe a brokered convention. We will see. We will see. So I promised you a few words about Hillary. Relax. Here they come. Um, she is the original good news, bad news candidate, I think. Uh, you go back to the Secretary of State's website, and what you'll see is that right now, there she is in a commanding lead with 49.8% of the vote. De Bernie's 49.6% of the vote. And I hate to disappoint you, but Martin O'Malley is already out of the race. Sorry. Hillary, the good news for Hillary is this. She avoids humiliation in the form of having to watch Bernie give a victory speech and then her stand up, as she had to do in 2008, and try to make chicken salad out of another chicken-based product. But there is a troubling sign here for Hillary in this regard, and the trouble begins with this turnout on the Democratic side. The Republicans had 187,000 people turn out in their race. The Democrats had 170,000 turn out in their race. That's 57,000 fewer than what Obama turned out in 2008. So there is no buzz there. She's not driving the buzz, nor is Bernie, the way that Barack Obama did. Other troubling signs for Hillary. Well, she won by two-tenths of one percent of the vote, we think. Uh, Bernie's people are trying desperately to get their hands on the actual vote count to see what happened. There's all kinds of stuff going around. There are claims that the Microsoft cloud did not work as advertised. Votes went missing, so on and so forth. But the moment's lost. Bernie can't claim victory. Get over it. 
But the fact is that she blew a 30-point lead at one point in Iowa and just held on by her fingernails at the end. She was clobbered among voters under the age of 30. According to various polls I've looked at, she lost as much as 85% of the under 30 vote with Democrats. She picked up 20 counties that Barack Obama carried in 2008, and she lost 14 that she carried in 2008. So a very strange verdict for her. And in this regard, I think her campaign has a trouble. Uh, I don't know how many of you grew up on the East Coast or in a cold weather climate and learned how to drive in wintry conditions. But if you did, as a, as a young person, you were taught that when you hit a patch of ice, what do you do? You turn with the skid, not against it. Her campaign right now is turning against the skid in two regards. She has decided, since she is struggling as a candidate, that number one, she is going to latch herself to Barack Obama and make herself, make herself a third term of Barack Obama. This worked wonderfully for Herbert Hoover in 1928. This worked wonderfully for George H.W. Bush in 1988. And it'll probably work wonderfully for another candidate in 2048. It doesn't work in presidential politics. We don't want to give parties 12 straight years in the White House. So number one, she is doing something which historically does not make sense, especially with a president who, A, is hovering around 43 to 45% approval rating, and number B, has a wretched uh, uh, view of the country in terms of uh, headed in a positive direction. The negatives are just horrible for Barack Obama in terms of people thinking the country is on a wrong track versus a right track. So number one, she is latching herself to a ship which isn't sinking is probably at best we could describe as foundering. The second thing she is doing is she is trying to steal Bernie's act. And so instead of being now a, quote, progressive who likes to get things done, she's now progressive. I'll quote you the passage from her speech last night. Women's rights, gay rights, voting rights, immigrant rights, workers' rights. Citizens of the world unite. This is, this is stuff straight out of Eugene Jeb's playbook, and it's not smart politics for her. It works in Iowa, a state in which 40% of the people who voted last night on the Democratic side consider themselves socialists. It works in an electorate like Iowa's in which one-third of the Democrats who turned out last night think that Obama has not been sufficiently liberal as a president. But the reality is that this election will be won or lost for Hillary come November in where? Florida, Ohio, Virginia, Iowa with a larger electorate, Colorado, Nevada, not this very small sample, this 1% of 1% of 1% of America. So she is making potentially a long-term mistake in that regard. So moving forward, this could have been a much more difficult night for Republicans than I think it was. Uh, If Trump had won, uh, you would have been looking at a month of Trump. Trump winning in New Hampshire, Trump probably winning in South Carolina, and a month of just really bad press for Republicans. And a lot of Republicans probably hard-pressed to figure out what to do. Hillary also gets a break in that she doesn't have to deal with a month now of bad press in terms of what's going on. But the opening here for Republicans is plain and simple. Um, I hate to show biases when I stand up here, but in my own opinion, when you give the choices of Trump and Cruz and Rubio, Rubio is, in my estimation, the most electable of these three. And last night he put himself in a position to start that track. I think he's more electable than Cruz, who bases his chances plain and simply on this massive swell of conservatives turning out for him. It didn't work for Barry Goldwater in 1964. I don't think it's going to work in 2016. Or Donald Trump, who just thinks he's going to shake up the political system in ways we haven't. And he did shake it up last night, but they didn't vote for him. So Rubio, I think, is probably the option. So you see him on a path that way. For Hillary, she's on a path as well. She will probably get clobbered in New Hampshire next week. 
maybe not by 20 or 25 points as some uh, polls suggest, but she'll probably lose by double digits. Uh, if I were her, I'd take some consolation in that Bill Clinton lost to New Hampshire in 1992, as did George Bush in 2000 and Barack Obama in 2008. Maybe she continues that trend. Long term, she's going to get her party's nomination absent something very staggering happening, such as getting indicted. Uh, be glad to talk about the Q&A. Uh, I don't know if she owns an orange jumpsuit, by the way, but that's a very good question. Um, but she is pretty much on a path to the general election and uh, moving forward. So, so there you have it. Um, again, Iowa is a fascinating process. It, a lot changed last night in terms of how voters acted, but then they also voted continuity for Republicans. Uh, on a selfish note, I'd like to thank Tom Gilligan, by the way, because Tom probably doesn't know this, but I was invited the other day to uh, participate in a Hoover-sponsored function in Mexico in the middle of October. I'm going to Oaxaca on about October the 15th. Depending on who gets the nomination, I may buy a one-way ticket. <laughs> so thank you very much. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.